Welcome to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love, starting with San Francisco. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today we meet executive chef owner Gilbert Pilgrim and head chef Rebecca Boyce of San Francisco's quintessential modern restaurant, Zuni Cafe. The restaurant space was originally a cactus shop in the 70s, which explains the many beautiful windows. Original owner Billy West decided to turn the shop into a Mexican restaurant in 1979, but the restaurant didn't really catch on until the arrival of chef Judy Rogers, who joined in 1987. Rogers had a huge influence on the restaurant and on Pilgrim and Boyce. She really built those relationships with the farms, the people growing the food. I still recall being in the office with her and she'd be talking to a farmer about, you know, Punturelle and, you know, this is not how they grew it in Italy and just this drive and these, created these relationships that I think really helped push the food scene forward in San Francisco. Let's have a listen. So in your own words, can you describe Zuni Cafe? I would say that Zuni is a little bit of the central square of San Francisco in that we get all sorts of people. We get people who come in tuxedos to go to the opera. We get people who come in um, shorts and t-shirts after a baseball game. Uh, we get tourists. We get many locals. And we're very fortunate to have uh, many, many regulars. And that really gives the uh, restaurant a sense of family and continuity. And it also serves a very important purpose in that it keeps us on our toes because the regulars who've been coming for so many years know what to expect. They keep our palates very alert. And it also helps us evolve because as much as they want to have the same quality and the venerable chicken, they also want to have new things. Right. And I think it's a combination of that, of, of having so many different kinds of customers and so many regulars that have kept us vibrant for all these years. Yeah, I think it's very much the, in many ways, a quintessential San Francisco restaurant. I feel like you, you, you come to Zuni and it feels like you couldn't be anywhere else but in San Francisco on Market Street uh, in this bustling neighborhood with all of the seasonal ingredients and all of that. It's very representative of a, a place and you can't have the experience anywhere else. Yeah, and Michael, you know, Michael Bauer pointed something out to me that I'd never really thought about. And I wonder if Billy West, uh, who was the founder of Zuni, thought about it when, when he opened it, is that we were the first restaurant to be sort of open to the street at a time when most restaurants had, you know, they were walled off or they had curtains. And not only were we open to the street, but we were open to Market Street, which in the late 70s was not a pretty picture. <laughs> and it is sort of amazing <laughs> that it became, uh, that almost because of that, it and the food, but it became a very hip place. Mm-hmm. And knowingly or unknowingly, I think it had to do with that. Y- you would come to Zunia, you would be slumming it. Right. You know, this alley that we see right here was not developed. It was a uh, loft, which would be generous to call it a loft, uh, where all sorts of unimaginable things were going on. <laughs> Gosh. And uh, there was a parking lot over there that uh, I-, I would think that one car a day got stolen. Yet oh, man. people kept coming and yeah. coming and coming. That was Billy. Uh, 
Billy was, um, he was a Francophile. He loved, loved France and he loved food. And he, he opened the place with, I think, $10,000 with very little money. And uh, at first, you know, when you look at the building, you can see that it's sort of broken into three different spaces. Where we're sitting now is space one, and this was the first Zuni. The room behind us where the chandelier is here was stage two, and the point where the bar is was stage three. At first, this was a cactus shop, <laughs> and Billy was one of, the, uh, one of the owners. Then Billy took part of it to do the restaurant, mm -hmm. and as the restaurant became more and more successful mm -hmm. and clearly making more money than the cactus shop, <laughs> the cactus shop <laughs> began shrinking, and Zuni began extending to the point where the cactus shop moved across the street. Wow. And Zuni took over the whole space. I, I don't remember the, the time frame when that happened. Yeah. Um, maybe from 79 to 85 is how it grew. Mm -hmm. And uh, Judy Rogers, who was uh, the chef for over 25 years, joined, I think, in 19... Mid-80s. 1985 right? or so, yeah. yes. Yeah, mid-80s. And Judy definitely was the inspiration for the much more Mediterranean-inspired menu, sort of taking, you know, Billy West had the, the Weber grill set up in the alley and <laughs> the tableside Caesar salads and guacamole, and, and she really brought in, I think, the more Mediterranean, those French-Italian sensibilities, mm -hmm. um, the wood-burning oven mm -hmm. and the grill getting moved inside and, and built in the middle of the dining room. That was something that happened when Judy came in. Wh while the restaurant was operating. Well, exactly. It was being built while the uh, uh, restaurant was still, so diners could you were present during construction. And yeah. Wow, well, they would, you know, everything would get tented. Everything would get tented. And right. They would work through the night and until service started. Right. And at 11 o'clock, the construction would stop a tent would go over the oven but you would wa walk into Zuni and there would be this <laughs> mysterious structure <laughs> in the middle just you know getting bigger bigger and bigger yeah uh, w which again adds to the central square part of it that mm -hmm. uh, it, it happened while the customers were here and you could literally see the oven getting built until mm -hmm. you know two weeks later the oven was there did anybody know did the customers know what was being built yes what was uh, what was their reaction to it at that time I was not owner of the restaurant I was I was a customer of the restaurant and uh, I remember thinking this is a great endeavor I mean getting this done while you're open I mean if you ever done any remodeling at home yeah. you know that the littlest thing is going to cause so much dust right and I remember just marveling as how are these people pulling this off that you can come in for lunch at 11:30 yeah and it's clean right knowing that just Ten minutes before, it must have been mayhem. Right. Uh, and and that really says a lot about uh, Judy's yes. discipline and her drive. Mm -hmm. In that, when Judy wanted something to get done, mm -hmm. it would get done, and it would get done to perfection. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was that which she left for Zuni that also makes us be as good as we are, because she left us with an immense sense of. Uh, discipline and um, there are so many things that are codified into how we do them mm -hmm. uh, and that does not take away from uh, innovation or talent 
it, sh it just ha actually gives you more time to do so because there's all the basics are covered. I think that idea of you know we just we just have to there's just a right way to do something and we just we just have to do it that way mm -hmm. and like Gilbert said that foundation and so much is in place that you're you're able to do that Judy used to always say setting people up for success mm -hmm. and that is sort of I think the foundation of it and also that driving principle of yes you know we just have to be open and ready at 11:30 mm -hmm. despite the construction zone it's that sort of what drives us and inspires us to we just have to keep pushing ourselves to be better and yeah and all of that so may maybe it's a good time to share the story of of judy because she's obviously uh, you said she was here for 25 years and for those who may not know um it would be great to get your your thoughts on what she meant to the restaurant and how she even got started here because she wasn't here at the very very beginning right she came on board mm -hmm. i think 10 years or so after zuni yeah, opened she came yeah. uh, uh kathy riley who's also uh, a delightful and very talented chef was here before mm -hmm. and uh, she left to raise her child and um, billy hired uh hired judy uh judy had studied uh she studied art history at um, stanford and then just on a, not a planned uh, trip, uh, a family uh, friend or neighbor uh, knew the uh, Trois family in France uh, mm -hmm. who owned the Trois restaurant in Rouen. And uh, he arranged for Judy to go and spend a summer with them. And Judy and her family were seeing it just as a way to learn French. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> to, to get into yeah. cooking. <laughs> so she, uh, she fell in love with it, and uh, they fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she came back, she, uh, uh, I think I have it correctly, that uh, she was hired at, uh, Alice Waters hired her at Chez Panisse mm -hmm. uh, when the cafe uh, upstairs at Chez Panisse was just mm -hmm. getting started. Mm -hmm. She was the lunch chef. Right. Correct, yeah. yeah. And um, then she moved on to the cafe in Benicia at the Union, the Union. at the Union Hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, that is something that Marion Cunningham yeah. uh, arranged for her. Interesting. She did a couple of stints in New York and uh, was in the process of uh, trying to get her own place opened in Berkeley when Billy contacted her to come here. And uh, from day one, when Judy was here and I was a the customer, there was a buzz about this uh, crazy skinny lady <laughs> who had spent time in France uh, who the buzz was she was going to make a big difference in the culinary scene and and she did mm -hmm. uh, because she was absolutely tireless mm -hmm. uh, I mean she, she could work 27 hours a day and and still be fresh and ready for another round right yeah, and I think she really built those relationships with the farms, the people growing the food. I still recall being in the office with her and she'd be talking to a farmer about, you know, Punterelle and, you know, this is not how they grew it in Italy and just uh, this drive and these created these relationships that I think really um, helped push the food scene forward in San Francisco and mm -hmm. was doing it at a time where, you know, buying directly from farms was not at all common or typical and, and, and now it is and I think she was a huge influence on that. Um, yeah, um, some of the restaurants that I've gotten to know so far, a lot of them opened in the 90s. <laughs> and so if that's what Chef Judy was starting in the 80s, then obviously that was probably a big reason why they were starting to do that in the 90s. 
it's almost hard to imagine not having fresh ingredients from farm to the restaurant. And right, you so could get them, but you had yeah. to, you you had to go get them. Right. You yeah. know, there were no, you know, right now we, you know, we're so fortunate in that we have seven farmers markets that we go to a week, so uh, mm -hmm. we don't have to have the walk-in full of things on Monday and slowly empty it on s Sunday. Yeah, it, we get it just, they come, every day. They yeah. come every day. Every day you can go to a market, but in those days there were none. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you had to literally, none. you had to go table to farm almost versus farm <laughs> exactly. to table. <laughs> how did how did she get those ingredients? Would she would she get a team to actually the go to the had farms? A truck or? That uh, was was with us until was, very, until very maybe recently. A couple of years we, ago. We retired her a couple of years ago. Yes. It was this rickety truck oh that God. was that was so <laughs> funky that it was actually <laughs> an honor to be in it. Ah. <laughs> I was somewhat terrified when I was in that truck. I won't be fully honest. Full disclosure. <laughs> but uh, you know, we did the same thing that uh, you know, at the time Chef Anise in uh, in mm. Berkeley was, mm -hmm. was doing the same thing. And I worked at Chepanese uh, with Alice for years. And we also had a truck that was not as funky <laughs> as ours. <laughs> a little more stable. <laughs> a little more stable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at some point my job was actually to go to the farms uh -huh. and, uh, and get the stuff. You know, you would get to the restaurant at 4.30 in the morning, get in the truck and uh, drive and load the truck and, wow. and come back. Whereas now, you know, what we do is uh, we have a slightly uh, nicer car, yes. and we can <laughs> drive. We can drive to the farmers markets. Yeah, farmers market. And now a lot of the f some of the farms are, are big enough where they can deliver. Um, right. So we get, you know, certain star route will mm -hmm. thankfully bring us our romaine, those types of things. So we definitely, like I said, we get fresh stuff every single day. That's great. Yeah. Still, and still, the value of going mm. to the market yes, is—it's just invaluable yeah. What, yeah. what you see because you, um, as as Alice Waters likes to say, I, I love her quote that uh, you're you're cooking with vegetables that can talk back at you, right? <laughs> and, and you can see that when you're there shopping. Uh, there, there, there's nothing for me more thrilling than going to the market, seeing what is there, choosing what you want, and, and as you're doing it, coming up with what you're going to what you're going to do with those vegetables mm -hmm. that day or the next day. That is very different to me from uh, being downstairs in the basement and something arrives and it finds itself in the walk-in. Right, right. You know that that's it's like like that vegetable is not my friend. Right. <laughs> Whereas a vegetable that you buy at the market, it, you take more ownership of it. It's it's what's sitting on the stand next to each other ends mm -hmm. up, you know, being the dish. Mm -hmm. you know, you'll have beautiful fresh cranberry beans sitting next to these great heirloom cucumbers, and you kind of look at that and go, oh. Well, yeah, I think I know what I'm going to do with these tonight. Mm -hmm. Kind of happenstance yeah. and turns yeah. into a menu item. Yeah. It's almost like um, a very common theme I've started hearing is art and cooking. It goes very much hand in hand. And even just the fact that Chef Judy, for example, had a degree in art. Uh, the way you're talking about picking out vegetables in the market, it almost seems like um, an artist who's picking out her painting colors and mm -hmm. kind of envisioning what she can make with that. It's interesting to get a, a, a peek at the creative process and how it starts with sort of envisioning what the dish might look like just by seeing all of the potential ingredients that you can use. So where did both of you grow up? Uh, I actually, I'm born and raised in California. Uh, I grew up uh, in the South Bay, a town called Morgan Hill. 
so had pretty pretty typical California upbringing. Um, you know, ran around the neighborhood riding bicycles and playing <laughs> soccer. Um, yeah. But you know, my my mom was very much the cook for the family, and so I spent a lot of time in the kitchen watching her cook. Mm-hmm. Um, so food was definitely. You know, my mom always said, you know, we didn't, we weren't fancy, but we always ate well. Mm-hmm. Like we had real, you know, my mom made breakfast, lunch, and dinner, had real food, never fast food. Right. Everything from scratch, always had the best cookies in my lunch. And, you know, it, so it was very much part of my childhood and growing up and just the idea of there was quality and you had to sometimes pay for it and that it, mm-hmm. was, it was a special thing and it was you know, had dinner together every night. When you say pay for it, what do you mean? Well, just that, you know, real food, good food tends to be a little more expensive. And mm-hmm. so it's, but it's worth it. You're, it's what you're eating. Right. <laughs> I was also thinking of time because making time things from well. scratch also yeah, <laughs> yes, takes exactly. a little longer. That, but it's, yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, she doesn't take, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 uh, I, I think there was a very uh, effective uh, publicity campaign by uh, fast food yes. to start to turn cooking into something that you don't want to do. Right. You know, to make it seem hard and difficult, what a drudgery to get into it. You're going to get dirty. Your beautiful kitchen that you spend thousands of dollars in is going to get dirty. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, cooking a good meal at home can take 20 minutes or yep. half an hour. Yep. You know, the, the, the chicken here is, is uh, you know, one of our biggest sellers but if I cook a chicken at home I had a dinner party last uh, weekend six people came over and I think I spent 20 minutes you know at some point I don't count the time I put the chicken in the oven and I go have a glass of wine with my friends so that doesn't count yeah active. Uh, yeah active. I mean, it was not a very <laughs> fancy meal but it was delicious yeah, it was from exactly. scratch yeah it was yeah. fresh it was organic mm-hmm. and it took me 20 minutes right uh, and yes the, the price for co- buying organic vegetables is a little more but uh, there are uh, a lot of hidden costs if you buy from big agribusiness you're, there's the big cost of what it's doing to the environment that mm-hmm. we are you know we're all aware of but we don't like to think about it there is global warming uh, with the production of all the chemicals that need to go into the soil so they can produce the cheap food. The same thing with uh, fast food. You know, there's there's a reason why the hamburgers at fast food places are so cheap. The meat is coming from places where they're not grown properly. The workers are not paid a good amount. They are not taking care of the environment. They're deforesting areas in order to raise more animals. Mm-hmm. Basically, someone is getting screwed for someone else to pay a dollar ninety-nine for a right. hamburger, which is then going to mess up your body, which is going to make you go to the emergency room at some point, and you're going to have diabetes or early obesity because of it, and that all costs money. And in a way, we are all subsidizing yeah. fast food yeah. right. through our taxes, uh, taking care of people who are getting sick on it. Yep. And, uh, it, you know, it's something that I learned from Alice. It, 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 it can be very inexpensive to yep. cook a good meal for your family, except that big business makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. If you're in a poor neighborhood, there's going to be a bad supermarket, and it is proven that those supermarkets will charge a little bit more than the supermarkets in other, in, in non 
uh, dirt poor areas so that it becomes easier for you to just go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right. Yeah, and if there even is a supermarket, there's food deserts in many of the big cities that don't even have anything that offers any kind of vegetable, right. whether or not it's marked up. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Gilbert Pilgrim and Rebecca Boyce of Zuni Cafe. So, and what about you? Where Where are you from? I uh, I grew up in Mexico City in the uh, in the '60s, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, similar to Rebecca and my family, my grandmother was an amazing, amazing cook, and very much the same thing that you said. We um, we didn't eat fancy food, but we ate good food. Again, breakfast, lunch, and dinner cooked every day from scratch. Mm-hmm. And um, from an early age, my grandmother would take me to the market in Mexico City in the 60s, little, uh, that we call them tianguis, little farmer's markets uh, started sprouting all over the city. And each of them had different specialties. So every other day we would go hunting for something somewhere with big old mercado bags. And um, you know, I made the connection of if we take the time to get good food, we'll get really good food at home. And uh, at school I became popular. Well, A, my family had a chocolate factory. So that immediately <laughs> makes you very popular. That's cheating. With oh. <laughs> that was cheating. So not only did I have a chocolate factory, uh, but when friends came to eat, the food would be delicious. Because it was also at the time when in Mexico the, the big supermarkets started coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, before that in the 50s, that did not exist in Mexico. In right. the early 60s, that did not exist. So it would become, it, it started becoming a very uh, snobbish thing to do that you would buy your food not at the mercado, but that you would buy it at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, el supermercado. <laughs> and uh, so, and other families were doing that. You know, it, it became very declassé to go to the mercado. Everyone had to go to the supermercado. Yeah. And my grandmother refused to do that. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a huge value in that. And, and sadly, the supermarkets won, mm-hmm. uh, as they did here mm-hmm. for now. I mm-hmm. mean, in Mexico now, you, there are supermarkets everywhere. And the, the mercados are still there. And they're, they're now there's beginning to be a revival, a little bit lagging behind here, where it is now very, very chic to go to the real mercados to buy your food stuff. Uh, many of them are getting remodeled because they were beautiful, beautiful buildings, some from the early 1900s, uh, with beautiful architecture, you know, very much like what you see in France of just these huge cavernous spaces with very, very high ceilings, mm-hmm. with many different stands, with a, a tremendous sense of community where everybody's joking with each other and people have competitions as to who has the best corn. I do, you do. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother taught me how to develop relationships with with the sellers mm-hmm. so that you knew that, again, that your food was not anonymous. It was coming from someone who was working very, very hard to bring it to the market. You know, we would hear that they lived two hours away from Mexico City. They would wake up at two in the morning to come to market. The yeah. food comes from the land and there's a lot of work that goes into it. Right. And so these are essentially covered markets then, right? Is that essentially what mm-hmm. these We had two kinds. There's the, the covered that were always in the same place all the time. Mm-hmm. And then there were the, the moving tianguis. Mm-hmm. That would be like 
our farmers markets now. Got it. That okay. would just block a street and sell their exactly (laughs) yeah as you were talking you were reminding me of my childhood i grew up in chico there was a a regular farmer's market there still is and every saturday we would get our tomatoes from this lady she she saw me grow up and like when i'd come back from college she'd be like i've been giving you tomatoes since you were little so it's it's interesting i haven't experienced that myself here ever outside of that and not anywhere in San Francisco. What you're saying is that's coming back in, in Mexico more and more now you're seeing? Oh, very much so. Yeah. You know, when going, uh, I, I go back often and, you know, when going back to the market that I went to in my childhood, I saw them get a little decrepit and maybe not quite as beautiful as they used to be. And and now they're beautiful again. It's the thing to do now. You, you, you don't want to be caught at a supermarket. Right. <laughs> you want to be seen yeah. at, at the market. Right. For both of you, what was the first meal that you remember ever preparing? Growing up, I didn't, because the kitchen was very much my mom's domain. Uh-huh. And, you know, she's <laughs> sort of the second generation Italian. And yep. <laughs> there was, she, both, she and my grandma, it was very, you know, oh, can I help in the kitchen? I want to help, I want to help. Oh, no, 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 that's fine. Just, just sit over there. I'm yeah. fine, I'm fine. But kind of really what they were saying was, you're probably going to get in the way and you're not going to do it right. So just, just hang out over there and let me do it. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't really until I got to, to college, my mom finally taught me how to make our, our spaghetti sauce. Because um, you have to know that before you go to go to school, you need, you need to be able to cook for yourself. Right. Um, and but then the the dish I really remember making like, for my family was was lasagna, and it was this thing I'd watched my mom over the years make every holiday. You had to have it. And there was one year shortly after I graduated from college, my mom and I were talking on the phone, and she says, "I'm just not feeling well. I don't. I'm not going to make lasagna this year." And I just freaked. I was like, what do you mean? We have to have it. This is Thanksgiving without the lasagna. And he goes, well, well, I'll make it. And then when my mom said, oh, well, well that would be nice. I thought, oh my, oh, I, I thought you were just going to say you were going to do it, yeah. you know? And so I spent weeks, I was making, you know, test batches of lasagna for my friends, coerced them to come over for dinner so I could like practice and, and make sure it was going to be, you know, up to standards. And, and then finally, you know, the big day came, and after many calls to my mom of, you know, oh, what, what type of mozzarella do you actually use, and how much this and that, and, you know, get there, and, and my family loved it, and yeah. then it sort of became, you know, I was the official lasagna maker for Christmas that year, and my mom got me my own set of Pyrex <laughs> plans, and it was like, here you go, kid, job well done, um, but I think that was, sort of what gave me the confidence and to really what got me cooking and yeah making the the food for my friends and watching them enjoy it and then my family that's what I think really infected me a little with the cooking bug and yeah and it's kind of spun from there yeah mine was a little less less romantic than that. <laughs> it, it also happened when I came to uh, I came to the U.S. to go to college uh, and up until then, you know, being a man uh, in, in, in Mexico, in the kitchen, you were not allowed to do anything. Right. I, mean, I was allowed to carry the bags, but that ended, <laughs> that ended <laughs> my that participation. And then you needed to rest and relax and exactly. enjoy life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so when I came to college uh, here as a, as a foreigner, a year into it, the Mexico had a, a huge devaluation of the currency. Mm-hmm. So suddenly my tuition went up maybe sixfold. And... Um, I said, well, now I actually need to do something to make some money. Yeah. So I started making cheesecakes. (laughs) 
so I don't remember. On your Judy own and or story? Judy and I <laughs> joked about this because I, I can't remember where I got the recipe. Uh, <laughs> it was a very simple recipe. It was Philadelphia cream cheese, egg and sugar. Sounds good. Cracker crust, graham cracker crust. Graham cracker crust. <laughs> and they became a sensation. <laughs> and I was making so much money. <laughs> so you're just making cheesecakes I was and selling them to the I was, your students I was selling them dorm? to the students. Wow. Yeah, no, I lived in an apartment okay. at the time. And, uh, Who I knew would there was a cheesecake I market? Make, I, would, <laughs> I, I invested on a KitchenAid, and I would make my batter. Then I would put them in the oven. I would study while they were baking. <laughs> and I would bake like 20 a night, and I would wow. sell all of them. Wow. And then if you wanted them with amaretto because amaretto was very very hip then okay then i think i charged you three extra dollars <laughs> <laughs> and the amaretto cost me like 15 cents the little bit that i put in it and uh, then my roommates got wind of it and they said okay gilbert you're making so much money on this but you're using the kitchen that belongs to all of us <laughs> they wanted oh their cut. No. so then i had to give them a cut oh my god because the, the apartment also smelled <laughs> like cheesecake oh, all gosh. the time. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I can just imagine the roommate conversation like, look, we need some of your cheesecake yeah. business. And we have to disconnect <laughs> the fire alarm. Yeah. Because it was know. going on all the time. <laughs> that is So that, that got That's me amazing. into the restaurant That's what business. Got you into. And then I sort of became the official cook of the house. Okay. And then I negotiated getting <laughs> the feedback saying, okay, well, I'm going to do the cooking. So I no longer have to share the profits of the cheesecake. That's, that's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the constant negotiations. <laughs> Everything's a negotiation. <laughs> wow. So uh, how did you go from there to your first um, opportunity in the restaurant industry? Uh, I ended up getting a master's in business, and I ended up working at a law firm and running a law firm, and I, I did not like it. And um, a friend of mine was a uh, waitress at uh, Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And uh, she mentioned, well, you might uh, be able to go there once or twice a week as an intern. She introduced me to uh, Paul Bertoli, who was the chef, and I became Chef Anissa's first intern. Ah. And once a week, I would take off from the law firm on Monday and Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Mondays, I would work here with Judy at Zuni making chicken stocks. And wow. Tuesdays, I would work at Chef uh, Anissa. And at the law firm, I would, I would make it up by working Saturday and Sunday. Wow. I began to like it so much that I, I quit the law firm and uh, I became a full-time intern at Chez Panisse and about a year into it, they offered me a job making, I think in those days it was $5 an hour. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. What about you? How did you get from making lasagna to uh, <laughs> working in the restaurant industry? Yeah, it's not funny. It's not dissimilar to Gilbert's story mm -hmm. I you know I graduated from UC Santa Cruz moved to San Francisco got a job through my now sister-in-law helped me get a job at uh, KNBR KFOG oh. so I was working in the sales <laughs> department awesome. of a radio station um, but same thing like I just it was you know it was a great job great people but it just the work itself wasn't into and started cooking for my friends and uh, same thing my best friend was a waitress at uh, Emmy Spaghetti Shack Mm -hmm. in the outer mission yeah yeah and you know i was talking about taking classes at the culinary school is kind of a hobby and she said no 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 call the chef they need help in the kitchen just see and so at the time that was when sarah kiernan was the the chef at the spaghetti shack she, she took me in i would work my full day at the radio station and then hop on the bus and go to the spaghetti shack and work there at night and on the weekends and 
decided this is what I want to do and so quit the job at the radio station and started cooking full time and Mm -hmm. saw Zuni had a a position for a pantry cook so I applied for the pantry cook position at Zuni and they hired me and what is a what does the pantry cook do uh the salads I was making the the salad station plating desserts cheeses interesting yeah okay yeah Wow, I would have never associated salad with pantry, but I'm I'm also just learning all the terminology of <laughs> the titles yeah, kitchen, in the kitchen. <laughs> kitchen speak. Yes. <laughs> I worked at Japanese for um, uh, almost. I almost made it to twenty. But it wow. Was wow. <laughs> and um, I at, at that point I I was toying with the idea of uh, of retiring, so I left Japanese thinking I'm going to take you know, three years off and figure out what to do next. And I uh, thought about it for not more than 10 seconds. And I, <laughs> I said, I think I, th- I, think I am interested. Uh, and that was about 11 years ago. Wow, that's great. So I wanted to ask about the menu. You both mentioned that there are some very standard dishes here, notably the chicken. Was the chicken on the menu at the very beginning when, when Judy came on board? Or she sort of evolved into that dish? <laughs> No, I think, if I remember the story correctly, it was just one of those spur of the moment, kind of last minute, oh, let's just cook a whole chicken out of the oven (laughs) night, and it worked, and it was one of those, you know, kind of spontaneously went on the menu, and I don't think it ever, ever came off. Yeah. And that was probably in the... It was after the brick oven was built. Um, Right, it was, we we now have a brick oven. What are we going to do with yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like, what came first, the chicken <laughs> or the oven? In this case, the oven. The the oven. oven. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think you know, it's it's one. It's a great dish because it's not it's not trying to be modern or new. It's just trying to be aspiring to be always just the best roast chicken. There's something that's always comforting about that. Yeah. And um, at that time, nobody yeah, was no. doing it. Because right. it's, again, as, as Rebecca said, it's not a fancy dish, but no one was doing a roasted chicken yeah. with a bread salad, yeah. Yeah. with currants, scallions, mustard greens, mustard greens, and pine nuts. Yeah, At exactly. the time, I mean, that was very, very simple, but that was a revelation yeah. to people that something so, so simple yeah. could be so delicious. Yeah. To me, it's that dish where we really get to teach our new cooks that come in yeah. to really teach the philosophy of the Zuni approach to food. In some ways, it's harder to do a perfectly cooked chicken because there's nothing to hide behind. It has to be perfectly cooked. It has to have the right amount of salt. The greens mm-hmm. have to be dressed properly. There has to be the right amount of acid in the vinaigrette and all those little things. And so it's this dish that's always on our menu that we're constantly tasting and teaching that philosophy of, no, it has to be this way. Right. It, it can't be anything less. Otherwise, it's not not the zuni chicken right and that's where we get to really share that knowledge with our cooks who come in and that's what's cool about having a dish like that on the menu and how do you balance that um, nostalgic dish that has become such a classic since it accidentally appeared on the menu (laughs) how do you balance that with the desire that i imagine you both very much have to constantly try something new and keep your menu exciting for yourselves and for your customers it's having things like the chicken and the seizure that allow you to experiment with other things mm-hmm. in that we do not need to, we do not want to reinvent the wheel every day. Mm-hmm. So then we have our standards, the gnocchi, the Caesar salad, the chicken, that without sounding too hot-headed, that Zuni has been able to master them. And that allows us to 
put energy into coming up with new recipes because we know that that part of the menu is completely taken care of. It's by no means an automatic because as Rebecca was saying, we use them to teach the new cooks the philosophy about Zuni, uh, which is something that Judy felt very strongly about, the importance of repetition. Mm-hmm. That you cannot claim that you can make a good Caesar salad until you've made hundreds and hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, I know how to make a Caesar salad because it depends so much on how is the lettuce that day. Uh, there are times of the year when the lettuce is just a little bit bitter. Mm-hmm. There's a time of the year when the lettuce is just a little bit too wet or it's a little bit too dry or the leaves are a little bit too green and the flavor from the too green and the less green is different. And there's a time when the eggs are a little bit more wet than not. There's a time when the eggs are a little bit smaller than yeah. not. The cheese is also not a product, so the cheese also changes. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it really takes about a year of making Caesars, which on a busy night you can make as many as 80, for you to really master how to make a Caesar. And I, I think there's a value in that. It, it slows cooks down uh, in an age where, uh, because of television, because of social media, many people who've been in the kitchen for 10 minutes think that they are chefs and can run their own restaurant. I completely disagree with that. Uh, it took me, I would say, easily 10 years at Chef Anise to become a sous chef and to be a good sous chef. Mm-hmm. And then it took me another five years to become a chef and be a good chef. Right. Uh, but there are a number of people now that you know come through the restaurant working here or that I meet somewhere else who truly believe that if they spend a year in the kitchen, that they'll be able to open their own restaurant. And I'm sorry, they're so wrong. Yeah. Uh, they might be able to open their own restaurant, but they will not know what they're doing. Yeah, I think that kind of experience echoes for a lot of different disciplines. There's some people that are willing to face uh, more exposure when they fail, and some people are more comfortable, I think, with, with having a mentor who's directly there to, to learn from. But yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. What's the most challenging thing for you both now at this point with the restaurant and just in your day-to-day? Um, I think it's a little bit what Gilbert touched on, is really instilling in the new generation this, this sense of rigor, this sense of, um, Gilbert made me think of uh, a comment Judy made, she said, every time I cook a chicken, I learn something new. It's really that approach. You're maintaining the standards. You're you're building on that those those lessons, and it's not just you're learning recipes and now you've learned the Caesar salad recipe and you move on to the next recipe, but that it's a, it's a, an approach to food and and a way of thinking about it. I call it the dance. It's yeah. the making it <laughs> making it all come together and and look elegant and effortless. Right. I think right. that's the challenge. I would say the same. It's uh, the the challenge is personnel is uh, both in the front and in the back of the house. Uh, Judy used to say that the the cooking Mm -hmm. becomes the easiest part. Right. What's the most rewarding thing about having done what you've both done and contributed to Zuni and having been part of the team for as long as both of you have? Getting to work with Judy Rogers for as long as I did, the opportunity that I still get to work with Gilbert on a day-to-day basis, that's just to name two wonderful people that I've 
had the opportunity to work with. I've had the chance to work with a lot of really talented, really thoughtful, really wonderful cooks, and I think that also is the hardest part, but the best part when you really do make those connections with the folks that are of, of similar mind and, and have the same care and passion for the food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like see, seeing a good cook lead yeah. for a really good opportunity yeah. is, is, is tremendously rewarding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was uh, this young man, uh, Willie, who worked <laughs> with us for a couple of years and he worked very hard. He was very much paying attention to everything. I mean, you could just tell this, this young man is a sponge. He's absorbing everything. Yeah. And uh, he got it in his head that he wanted to go to Noma in uh, Copenhagen as an intern. And uh, he got in and he's now at Noma. And yeah. that just, it, you know, it gives me goosebumps to, yeah. to you know, see yeah, that, exactly. that Willie is now there. And it's tremendously rewarding to see the place, uh, you know, full at night. Uh, with the food going out, everything looking very good, the, the right art on the walls, the right music playing at the bar, the, the place just humming, looking like Judy w described it that at night, because of the shape of the restaurant, that it looks like a slice of a cake. It's a perfect triangle, and at night when it's all lit up, it just looks like you're having a party inside a cake. <laughs> I think also, you know, what's also amazing about Zuni is, you know, I'll go out in the dining room and talk with the regulars and they'll say, you know, I've been coming to this restaurant for 30 mm -hmm. years. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. So and we yeah. get to have our cake yeah. and eat you it know, too. It's, it's such a special yeah. thing. I mean, where else yeah. can you get to do that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's true. I mean, it's just this beautiful kind of like gem that sort of sparkles onto Market Street. Well, thank you both for taking the time to chat today. Yeah, thank you. You're thank very you. welcome. Thank you. So next time you're walking down Market Street and see the sparkling bottles above the copper bar, stop into Zuni and enjoy a drink in this one-time cactus shop and trust that Voice and Pilgrim continue to keep Zuni among the best restaurants that San Francisco has to offer. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we meet two young men with old souls who are cooking up much more than excellent food in the family-oriented neighborhood of Bernal Heights, the duo behind Hillside Supper Club. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Special thanks to Siska Silatonga, Menu Stories Assistant Editor-Producer, and Patrick Wong, our videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.